Well, we are trying to continue our study through the book of Revelation. That was a few weeks ago we started that, or started chapter 4. Chapter 4, as we talked about earlier, was the, is the midsection of Revelation. It runs from chapter 4 through chapter 15. And this section contains the great apocalyptic visions of the seven seals, trumpets, and vials. All right? And most of this language is symbolic, and there's, there's numerous interpretations. But we need to understand that these symbols represent realities and not vague generalities. In other words, it's, it's real. It's going to happen. It's not, a, it's not a symbol for something that may happen. It's going to happen. Again, for example, the Antichrist, he's called a beast. But he's, he's a real man. Even though the Bible calls him a beast, he's a real man. So it's reality as a symbol. Jesus is referred to as the lamb. But he's the same Jesus who went up to the Mount of Olives and said he's going to come again. And the visions that come from these chapters focus on the coming judgments that are going to bring an end to this present age. Now we all think that the rapture is going to happen and it could happen any moment. How many are anticipating that? I mean, I tell you, every time I, my wife and I go out and I lose her, I'm thinking the rapture happened and I didn't make it. Because <laughs> we went shopping yesterday and I couldn't find her for nothing. I'm like, oh, come on, man. Tell me I didn't make the rapture. <laughs> but we know that God's still in control. And that's where kind of we're going to start with chapter 5 on. Now, why do we study Revelation? The church isn't going to be here for anything after chapter 4. So why do we care if we're not going to be here? Well, because verse, chapter 1, verse 3 says this. God blesses the one who reads this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to it and obey what it says. So that's us. For the time is near when these things will happen. And I think no nearer than today. Now we mentioned the first three chapters are letters to the churches telling them that they better be ready for what's going to happen. All these things, that they, you know, all these tweaks they got to do, these things they got to fix in the church, God wants them to be ready for the time when the church is raptured. If they don't correct them, the Bible says, let, let, let them hear what I'm saying to them. If they don't correct them, they're not going to make the rapture. Let me get a quote here. Getting harder to get down. Part of what, when I was quoting Trask, and this is, uh, actually isn't even in my notes, but I was thinking about this this morning. He goes off on streaming the services. And what he talks about is, with the churches were shut down, we went to streaming, we went to broadcasting. The problem with that is, people get comfortable comfortable watching at home and he, he goes off on a rail on that but he says look here's the thing God does his work in a group God when the Holy Spirit moves he's going to move here and if you're not here you're going to miss it and he says now for those who can't make it it's great let God minister to you there but he says if you're too lazy to come to church and he says this seriously. He says, what's going to happen is you're going to be too lazy and you're not going to make it because it's going to become 
so easy to stay home and then so easy to miss. We get a tracking on how many people watch. And even when we were closed, not that many. So that tells me they're not watching. So when we want to be ready for the rapture, that means God's going to do his work. And if we're not here to really receive from that, and you know, occasionally when you're on vacation, that's fine. But if it's a constant thing for you because it's comfortable, you're missing what God wants to do. All right, Revelation chapter five. Now, I'm, I'm no, by no means an expert or scholar. I just try to study it and, and give the best that I can on this. So Revelation chapter five, verse one says, and I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Chapter five starts off with a scroll that's gonna be related to the judgments that's coming. All these ones are about to fall on the earth. It describes how the world is gonna be judged and it shows the final, final triumph of God over the evil that's gonna be in the world. And it tells now how God the Father is holding the scroll. He is in control of everything that's in the scroll, which means everything that follows. Verse one continues, there was, a, there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. A seal, you probably all know, is a mark of authority. If someone has sealed something, it means the, only the authorized person can open and break that seal. Sometimes they use a signet ring. In the Old Testament, you'll see God used a seal, and, and when they put Jesus in a tomb, they sealed the tomb. All these are meant to show that whoever has the authority is the only person that's able to open that seal. It wasn't the seal that's valuable. It was the author of the seal. Who wrote and who put the seal on it in the first place? And since God the Father is holding the scroll, we assume that he's the author of the scroll. And seven is the number of perfection, and seven seals means there's absolute security and truth of what is written within those scrolls. Now usually scrolls only have writing on one side, not both, but seeing this writing on both sides indicates that this scroll is overflowing with information. It also means that once it was completed, nothing more can be added to it, and obviously nothing more can be taken from it. It was full, cover to cover, inside and out, back and forth, there's no room to add anything else. Nothing can be taken from it. Verse two says, and I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal on this scroll and unroll it? Now the only person able to open a seal is the person that is authorized to do so. And the angel's looking around, who is gonna be worthy to do that? The angel's not worthy, he can't open it. He is concerned about who is going to open it. The Bible says he is guarding the scroll so that nobody who is unworthy can actually see what's in the scroll. Verse three says, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. So after searching everywhere in creation, nobody was able to open the scroll. And this kind of harkens back to Philippians 2.10 where the same phrasing is used. It says, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth, which is the same phrasing that verse three has. So all three realms of creation were searched and nobody was worthy. All of creation was searched. But Jesus wasn't created. Jesus always was. Nobody who has been created at any time 
is worthy of God's grace. How many know that? We're all sinful. None of us is worthy of God's blessing. None of us is worthy of anything from God. The only reason we have is because of what Jesus did. God's forgiveness through Jesus. Everything we have, the Bible says, every good and perfect gift we have comes down from the Father of light. So any blessing you have or I have is because of God. If you have the ability to have a good job, God gave you that ability. If you have a family, God gave you the family. Everything we have is, is from God. And we're not worthy of any of it. You, you ever look around at, at other countries maybe or even this country where there's homeless people living on the street? Why don't we live on the street? God's grace. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust, so everybody, whether they're a Christian or not, if they've experienced blessing, it's because God's grace is on them. They just don't realize it. But none of us are worthy to come into God's presence without Christ. Verse four continues and says, then I wept because no one could be found guilty who was worthy to open the scroll and read it. So there's nobody who, have, who has ever lived or whoever will live is worthy. No angel is worthy. No human is worthy to open that. And John knows the importance of what's in that scroll. Last time we talked about Revelation chapter four, it says when James was talking to John, it says the voice says, come up here and I will show you what must happen. So he knows that whatever's in that scroll, he's got to see it. And if no one can open the scroll, how is John going to see it? He's not going to see, he's not, he, he knows that God's judgment and blessings aren't going to happen if that scroll can't be opened. And nobody can open it. No angel, no human can open it. Verse five says, but one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the Lord, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne has conquered. He is worthy to open the scroll and break its seven seals. Now we know, we recognize the phrase, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We have a song that basically says that in the title. The lion is, being, is the king of the animals, and we get that from Genesis 49. When Jacob, or I mean Joseph, is pronouncing blessings on his kids, all of the 12 tribes, he's saying this. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will defeat your enemies. All your relatives will bow before you. Judah is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who will dare to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will obey. So the lion of the tribe of Judah comes from that verse. And from Jeremiah 23, 5, it says, For a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will place a righteous branch on King David's throne, heir to King David's throne. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this is his name, the Lord is our righteousness. And then Luke 1, 32, He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. So when he, back in Revelation when he's talking about the lion, the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, it's obvious he's talking about Jesus. And Christ fulfilled this promise, and now because of that, because of his death and resurrection, he is able and he is worthy to open the scroll. And verse six says, I looked and I saw a lamb 
that had been killed but was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. John doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And that's a theme throughout the book of Revelation. You're going to see the lamb referred to at least 28 times in Revelation. And the term used for lamb is little pet lamb. It means little pet lamb. And if you, if you study your Old Testament, for the Passover, when they had a Passover lamb, the Passover lamb was not meant to be some arbitrary lamb from the, from the flock. Just go out and grab one. It had to be one that you raised in your house as a pet. So it, it signified something to you when you had a sacrifice. It's like your favorite pet now. You have a dog or a cat that's your favorite pet. You raise it from an infancy, and that's the one that God asks you to sacrifice because it has to mean something to you. In, when David sinned against Bathsheba, when Nathan came to confront him, what was his story, his emotional word story? He says, a guy had a bunch of lambs. He just sacrificed one lamb. He took the one ewe lamb from this one family. That's all they had. The, kid, the kids grew up with the lamb, and this guy stole the lamb and sacrificed it. And David got all incensed, right? Well, Passover lamb had to be a lamb that meant something to the people that were sacrificing it. It had to be something that was important to them. It couldn't just be a, a random lamb from the flock. And that's exactly what they're talking about when they say that Jesus is the lamb. It, was, it had to be important to God. For Jesus' sacrifice to mean anything, it had to be important to God. It's Exodus 12, 6, talking about the Passover lamb, it says, take special care of these lambs until the evening of the 14th day of the month. Most Jewish sources say that the lamb had to live in the house of the owner. And it had to mean something to those who were sacrificing it. The lamb in Revelation bears the mark of the sacrificial lamb, just like in, in Passover lamb. John 1.29, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53.7 says, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And the lamb that John sees is the lamb that marks the has the markings of one who was sacrificed, not a clean, unsacrificed lamb. Jesus meant something to God as he was sacrificed. Now we think, of course he did. But 1 Peter 1.18 says this, for you know that you were, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. God didn't pay for your sins with gold or silver. He could have. But he paid with something that meant something to him. The only thing that actually meant something to God because God owns everything. And for God to give up his son for us, just like the sacrificial lamb, it, it had to have meaning to God. I was telling Noah today, I said, hey, I said, no offense, buddy, but I'm not going to give up one of my kids for you. And he, you know, he said, he laughed. He said, me neither. And that's true. Who, which one of us would give up our children for someone that we don't know? It's not happening. But God gave up his son for people, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. In other words, while we still hated God, he died for us. It wasn't like we were ready and we were worthy of it. 
It's why we still hated him, God died for us. So Jesus meant something as a sacrifice. Verse six goes on and says, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that are sent into every part of the earth. Again, more symbolism, and again, seven, the number of perfection. The seven horns represent perfect power and perfect strength. The seven eyes represent perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, and the seven spirits represent perfect presence. That's the Holy Spirit in all the earth. And until Jesus returns, how is God's work done? Through the Holy Spirit. And all these meanings are basically different definitions for these words, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. And those are all attributes of God. So the person who's opening these has all the attributes of God. Again, Jesus was God. Jesus has all the attributes that only deity can have, so he is God. Verse seven, he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. So the lamb, the scarred up lamb, takes the scroll from God the Father, which indicates that God is now passing his authority to Jesus. God held the scroll with all the judgments that's coming. Nobody can open it. It was up to God to do it. He's passing the scroll to Jesus saying, now you have all the authority to do that. And since the scroll represents this revelation, what's gonna happen in the redemption of the world, God is now giving the responsibility of all that's gonna happen to Jesus. We were talking about Pharaoh, my wife and I were talking about it and we were talking about it in Sunday school class today. Combined with the unpardonable sin, you know, when we say, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God didn't harden his heart, God let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. If I know that my actions are gonna cause someone to do something and I do that, I don't cause them to do it, that's the reaction to what I'm doing. When, so when God sent all these plagues to Egypt, he knew what his response was gonna be. And he let Pharaoh do what Pharaoh wanted to do. He let Pharaoh, as Romans says, he turned him over to a reprobate mind. He let Pharaoh do what his natural inclination was to do. And we as people have the Holy Spirit to help us not do that. And we talk about the unpardonable sin when God says, okay, I'm, I'm done drawing them. In other words, he's letting you do what you wanna do. If you wanna keep on doing it, he's not gonna interrupt, he's not gonna stop, he's drawing you enough, he's not gonna do it anymore. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, Matthew 28, he says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. And he has that authority because of his victorious death on the cross. The lamb now will be the center of everything that happens in Revelation. God the Father is kind of stepping back, giving Jesus the authority, and everything that's gonna happen from this point on is because Jesus is in control of it. Jesus is also at the throne. Now I like this, one commentator says this. Some images and songs and poetry emphasize the gentle carpenter or humble teacher, but they fail to exalt the risen Lord. We do not worship a babe in a manger or a corpse on a cross. We worship the living, reigning Lamb of God who is in the midst of heaven. 
So we don't worship the baby Jesus. We worship the line of the tribe of Judah who's ready to execute judgment, the creator of the universe. That's who we worship. And now that Jesus has the authority to now institute all these judgments. Verse eight says, as he took the scroll, the four living beings and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. When the lamb came and took the scroll, they cried, ending and praising, and the ending, crying and praising and uh, worshiping began. John sees the living beings and the elders bow down and worship. Again, acknowledging that Christ is God. Because nowhere in scripture, every time someone bows down to worship an angel or somebody else, what's the angel say? Get up, man. Don't worship me. Revelation 22.8 says, I, John, am the one who saw and heard all these things. And when I heard and saw these things, I fell down to, to worship the angel who showed them to me. But he said, don't worship me. I'm a servant of God just like you and your brothers, the prophets, as well as all who obey what is written in the scroll. Worship God. So when these guys bow down and worship and Jesus doesn't make them stand up again. Another indication that Jesus is God. 5.8 continues, it says, each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, the prayers of God's people. This refers to the desperate and sincere prayers of God's faithful people. Now in chapter six, next week or so, we're gonna see that those who have been martyred are calling out to God for judgment. It hasn't happened yet, but they're praying for God to pour judgment upon these people. Revelation 6.10 says this, they called loudly to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge the people who belong to this world for what they have done to us? When will you avenge our blood against these people? You know, people in other countries can be praying that right now. <laughs> or families of people who've been martyred. When are you gonna avenge all these people that have been martyred for being a Christian. It's gonna happen. It's just not when we want it to happen. But God is going to execute perfect judgment. Now when Jesus is talking about the unjust judge in Luke 18, it says, even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people, what, who plead with him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? When we pray, that's why we have, we have the week of prayer, we have prayer and fasting, and we have prayer on second and fourth Thursdays, and we have prayer today. It's not a one-time thing, not one and done. We persist in prayer. When Daniel was praying in, in Daniel, the Bible says it took three weeks for the angel to actually respond to get to Daniel. And the Bible says that the angel was fighting against the demons for 21 days. So for the entire time Daniel's praying, there is spiritual warfare going on preventing the angel to get to Daniel. He finally gets there, but if Daniel would have quit after two weeks, wouldn't have made it. So when we continually pray, what's the acronym, push? Pray until something happens. That's what we're doing. We're praying until something happens. The bowls of incense indicate that the scroll must be open and the judgments of the tribulation must take place before the prayers are fully answered. So all these things that are gonna happen through the tribulation are before God's final judgment on the world. 
And up, up until now, the worship has been directed to God the Father. Now the worship is directed towards Jesus. And as soon as he takes the scroll, what happens? Worship begins. In chapter 4, we said it was about God the Creator. Now the emphasis in chapter 5 is on God the Redeemer. Praise that is only supposed to be towards God alone is now focused and done to Jesus. Again, going back to what we read in Revelation 22, 8. It says, worship God at the end. The elders recognized that Jesus was in fact God and was now worthy to be worshiped. When Jesus walked on the earth, he was 100% man and 100% God. And this is the, the weird part. Jesus had all the authority and power of God while he worked here. But he didn't exercise any of it in any of the miracles he did. Everything he did, he did because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit worked through him as a man. So when we pray and we believe the Holy Spirit, we can, same thing happens through us. Not because we're God. Jesus didn't operate as God. He operated as man. When Jesus says, you'll do these things and many more, it's because, not that we'll do more of them personally, but there's more of us to do them. So when we pray, we're praying just like Jesus prayed. And God can use us just like he used Jesus. If we are prepared, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we have a really tight relationship with God, God can use us. So now they, their worship is done with music and song. Why do we worship with music? Because they worship with music in heaven. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if they're worshiping with music in heaven, we're going to worship with music on earth. And the harps, now this is going to blow your mind here. One commentator says this, the Greek root word for harp is the root word that we use for our word guitar. And the harps probably sound more like guitars than what we think of as a harp. So they probably want electric guitars, probably acoustic, but it's okay. And they sang what? An old song. No, they sang a new song. Something never before being heard in heaven. Now we celebrate it, and because it celebrates God's New Testament act of deliverance through Christ. It was a new song, something that never happened before. Verse 9 and 10 it says, You're worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were killed, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have caused them to become God's kingdom and his priests and they will reign on earth. So we're gonna look at a couple of those words really quickly and try to get it done here. Ransomed, he used the word ransomed. It literally means bought us by the blood that Jesus shed. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or 6, 19 says, you don't belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So we are part of God's possession, God owns us. What type of song was it? Well, it was part one, it was a worship song. Verse nine says, you're worthy to take the scroll. 
Songs of worship should always be directed at the Lord. We have to be sure that what we sing focuses on the worship of Jesus. On the songs that we sing focused on worshiping Jesus. Now, there's a lot of good Christian songs out there, but not all of them focus on worshiping Jesus. The second part, it was a gospel song. It says, for you were killed and your blood has ransomed people for God. Heaven sings about the cross and the redeeming blood of Christ. The song should contain somewhat of a gospel message in it. Number three, it was a missionary song. It says, you've ransomed people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. God wants everyone to hear the gospel, and he wants everyone to be saved, not only a select few. In our verse, we've been clinging to 2 Peter 3, 9, for the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants everyone to be saved. The Bible says the, de- the hell was made for the devil and his angels, wasn't made for people. God wants everyone to be saved. So we pray and we pray and we pray until they are saved. Revelation 5.11 says, Then I looked again and I heard the singing of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders. And they sang a mighty chorus, The Lamb is worthy. The lamb who was killed, he is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The numbers that you use here for angels indicate that it was beyond their ability to measure. Numerous. Notice the angels did not sing about redemption. They don't need to be redeemed, nor could they be redeemed. But they did worship Jesus for who he is. They kept saying that Jesus is worthy of worship. Again, worthy to receive seven things. Again, number of perfection. He's worthy to receive power. Our verse in Matthew we talked about, I've been given complete authority, which is power in heaven and on earth. He's worthy to receive riches. He not only created everything, he redeemed everything. He's worthy to receive wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. What's the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 1.24, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the mighty power of God and the wonderful wisdom of God. James tells us, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He is also worthy to receive strength. Strength is the power of truth. The truth will set you free from sin. He is worthy to receive honor, which is reverence and respect that he is due for all he has accomplished And he's worthy to receive glory, the brightness and the splendor and radiance of God. John 17, 5 says, And now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. So he's going to get the glory back that he gave up. And finally, he's worthy to receive blessing. And the Greek word means praise. When we say bless the Lord, we speak good about God. We speak about how glorious he is. We praise God for who he is, like we praise someone's efforts. Revelation 13, 513. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They also sang blessing and honor and glory and power belonging, belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped God and the lamb. And then once it was done or as it was going on, all of God's creatures worshiped God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, like one huge worship service. 
know, we, we run about five songs on a Sunday. One opening and four for the time. Some people love music, some people don't like music. But the Bible says when we're in heaven, we're going to be worshiping God for a long time <laughs> through music. So one of the reasons we do that is because God says he does it right now. But we also want to honor God with our singing and worship and use the songs to edify God. And a lot of times, I mean, why is music so powerful? Because the lyrics of a song can really touch someone's life. I mean, why are songs so popular? Because something in that song says something to that person who's listening to it. There's a song, it's called White Dress uh, by a guy named Kenny Marks. You guys remember that name? It's an old, he's, he's since passed away. He was a Christian artist in the 80s. He did a song called White Dress. And I must have listened to that song hundreds of times. Every time I hear it, I, I tear up, man. He talks about, the song is about a father who leaves his daughter when she's a baby, this takes off. And the song goes on, he comes back at the end, and every time I hear that song, it just, it just. <sighs> Music has that ability, and when you worship God, the same thing should happen. The lyrics of the song should really touch you. The one song we sang at the end, it seems like now that the walls would be gone by now. The walls have fallen by now. Man, how many of you think that when you pray? Been praying this so long, God, how, how it's not answered yet, you know? All these songs that we sing should be meaningful and allow us to worship that much more. God's eternal plan, now we're in the chapter six, it will now be fulfilled and creation will be set free from sin and death. And the next chapter shows that the lamb breaking the seals and putting into motion that he events that will eventually lead to his final return at the second coming of Christ. And that's gonna be chapter six and that'll be next week, Lord, Lord willing. And I'm, I'll tell you, we're having church. If nobody is able to come, I'm still having church. Because we're not gonna put up with this weather stuff anymore. We're praying for spring. I said before, winter is part of the curse. There was no death before the curse. Everything dies in the winter. Therefore, part of the curse. All right, would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Hallelujah. We talk so much about showing people what Jesus means to us and leading people to Christ. And we have to offer that at every service. Because it's possible to sit in a church for years and never get saved. I did it. Until God finally broke through. So maybe you've been attending this church for a long time or maybe this is, you're relatively new. And you think that because you attended church you're in right relationship with God. But you're not. The Bible says we need to look back on our life and we need to be able to know a specific time and date that we made that decision to trust Jesus. 
And unless you can point to a time that you know that you made that commitment to Jesus, maybe you don't have that relationship. Maybe you're a good churchgoer, but you're not a Christian. The Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. And if you're not sure about that, you're not really confident of your relationship with Christ, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to make it right with God. Next week in chapter six, we're gonna talk about all the horrors that are gonna be poured out on, on this earth. And that's just for seven years. Actually, only for three and a half years. But hell is for eternity. And the Bible doesn't want, says that God doesn't want anyone to go there. It wasn't made for us. But those who go there, go there because they've chosen to go there. They don't, they don't accept what God's word says. So if you're here this morning, you've never really made a commitment to Christ. You've never bowed your knee before him and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. There's nothing good in me. And the only way that I can be freed from this sin and the penalty of the sin is because of your death on the cross. Your death paid my debt. And I believe that in my heart. The Bible says you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God, Jesus is God and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not just believing in your head. Everyone believes in Jesus at some point. But the 18 inches from your head to your heart is what matters. The Bible says God is drawing you. He's knocking on the door of your heart, wanting you to open the door to have a right relationship with him, to know what it means to be saved, as the Bible says, or born again, as the Bible says. If you're here and that's you and you know God's speaking to you, and the Bible says no one comes to God unless God the Father draws him. So that means if you're thinking about it, that means God's making you think about it. God's giving you an opportunity to come to know him. If that's you and you want that relationship, you want to be assured of your relationship with Christ, I want you to raise your hand right now. All right, I'm gonna trust that everyone here has a relationship with Christ. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for calling us into your family. We thank you for looking down upon our lives and we were so unworthy. And yet you came to us and you drew us and you put up with us and you saved us. And you still put up with us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the grace you pour upon our lives every day. And Father, as we prayed earlier, we're expecting great things to happen. Not because we are worthy of that, but because we want to see the glory of God seen in our midst. Lord, I commit each person here to you. I pray your blessings upon them. Allow them to leave knowing that they've been in the presence of God. You are doing the work. We're just your servants doing what you ask us to do. But any glory and credit go to you. So bless us as we leave, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Don't forget, meeting right in about five minutes.